Welcome to your favorite F word podcast, where we dive deep into conversations around food, fitness, feelings, with the occasional fuck thrown in. We're your hosts, Sarah and Nicola, owners of Paradigm Nutrition and Performance, nutrition coaches, besties, and most importantly, humans. This show is for coaches, self-growth-oriented folks, active humans, or anyone looking to deepen their understanding and relationship with food, movement, and themselves. Thanks for tuning in, and we cannot wait to share this space with you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of season four. This is episode two, and wouldn't you know it, we are recording this ahead of time. Yes, we are. New year, new us, for as long as we can muster. Yeah, we'll see Um, how long this lasts. (laughs) So your favorite F word coming at you today to talk about menstrual dysfunction and specifically low energy availability and how that relates to menstrual dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Um, This is something, a topic that I mean is going to be relevant for all of us menstruating listeners out there, Mm -hmm. um, but also kind of like fun to dive into because this is really Sarah's, I don't want to say your bread and butter, but (laughs) this was what she wrote her master's thesis on. So Mm -hmm. Today's going to look a little different. It's not going to be as like chatty as we usually do. Um, More about like me kind of facilitating Sarah, educating us all on, you know, some ins and outs of what to look for, um, some applications, some takeaways all around energy availability and what we might look for in terms of assessing menstrual dysfunction. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Um, I'm also excited because I had to do very little work in preparation for this. <laughs> I just got that to show nice. up. I didn't have to, I didn't have to write the outline. Sarah, but we are outline. going to take turns with this kind of style. <laughs> so Nicola is going to do some where she's sharing some of her research. Yes. But I do up. like starting on this side. Yeah. Yeah. I'm much more comfortable in the facilitator role. Um, so yeah, we're we're just trying to change things up a little bit for season four. Um, as we've alluded to, we're going to have some guests coming up in future episodes, um, mostly friends of the pod, so uh-huh. to speak, um, but covering certainly some things relevant to fitness and nutrition as per usual, but also just like getting to know some really interesting people who have some cool shit to share with us mm-hmm. so that will be coming in the future and as per usual, if you like the new style if you hate the style that we're kind of like moving into let us know we appreciate the feedback mostly just if you like it yeah true we are sensitive <laughs> souls so yeah. like don't hate too hard mm-hmm. um but no for real okay so tell us a little bit more about why we're getting into this and like why this subject is important for our listeners and for us. Mm-hmm. So we at Paradigm, we work mostly with women. So obviously menstrual function and everything that comes along with that throughout the life cycle, um, fertility, pregnancy, menopause, this stuff is so relevant in our lives. And we've also seen the effects that it has on the women that we work with. So proper menstrual function is absolutely crucial for overall well-being, even if you're not someone who ever wants to have children. Um, I think a lot of times, and Nicola is raising her hand, I think a lot of times we think like, oh, I don't want to have kids or I'm not even close to having kids. 
or I'm past having kids. And so my menstrual cycle and the health of my sex hormones isn't as relevant. And that is absolutely not the case. Um, our hormones that are involved in our menstrual cycle, estrogen, progesterone, FSH, and LH, they all play huge roles in things like our mental health, our cardiovascular health, how we manage inflammation, substrate metabolism, cholesterol. So many different processes in our bodies are affected by these hormones. And so if there is an issue, um, whether we're producing too much, too little, um, or having any dysfunction, there's a lot of long-term effects that can happen. And that's what we're going to go through in a little bit here. Um, and another big thing I've been doing a lot of research on menopause in preparation for this, uh, seminar that I'm giving tonight. And a, I'm fucking terrified of menopause. <laughs> oh my God. It's, it's very scary. Yeah. I remember one time Nicholas said to me, like, I won't stand for it. I, I just won't. Um, well, but, I still, I still feel that way. Yeah. But taking care of your menstrual health and supporting healthy hormones when you're younger can help reduce the negative effects that come from menopause and can also help delay the onset of it, um, which I think all of us would be fucking pumped about. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of good takeaways here and a lot of important things we need to consider. Also, because we work with clients who have body composition goals and often go through periods of calorie deficits, this is something that we really need to keep in mind when we are going through a fat loss phase, pursuing a calorie deficit to make sure that we're not putting ourselves in a situation where our long-term function is at risk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anyone who menstruates, anyone who coaches people who menstruate, anyone who lives with people who menstruate or loves people who menstruate or is friends with people who menstruate could probably benefit from the information we're about to share. Yeah, just more information in general. Um, sure. And to your point about working with clients who diet, absolutely, that's something we look at. Um, but I'm also thinking too, just about how many clients come to us under eating or mm -hmm. with some like complaints around their menstrual cycle in general. Um, and looking at people who are like over worker outers. Mm -hmm. um, we get a lot of clients who are like hell bent on training a ton yeah. and not doing a lot of rest. So as we'll talk about um, in a little bit here, Sarah can explain the ins and outs of what that might look like and what things to be aware of in terms of are you overtraining and under recovering and what that looks like from an energy availability standpoint. So absolutely great, great, great. Okay. Well, um, just to kind of like settle in with all of this, um, probably helpful to re remind everybody about just like a quick recap of the menstrual cycle itself, hormones, phases, mm -hmm. so we're all on the same page. Yeah, we've done a couple podcast episodes on the menstrual cycle. So if you want to dive into that a little bit more, the one in season three is probably the best because the first one we did was like the fourth episode ever. And our <laughs> mindsets have changed quite a bit since that one. Um so there is that, but basically when we're talking about the menstrual cycle, we need to keep in mind that there's various phases and various hormones that fluctuate throughout those phases. Okay. So there's four main hormones. There is luteinizing hormone and FSH, which are heavily tied together. Um, FSH induces follicular growth within the ovaries 
And then luteinizing hormone or LH initiates the breakdown of the follicle and causes the release of the egg. Okay. So these are heavily tied to ovulation phase. Then we have estrogen. I'm just going to use the term estrogen for the sake of today's conversation, but there are different types of estrogen. And the estrogen that we're talking about today is specifically is referring to estradiol. Okay. Um, but this is produced by the follicles in the ovaries and estradiol is known as the happy hormone. So it has huge benefits on our mood, on our libido due to its ability to regulate serotonin and dopamine. Okay. Estrogen also plays a huge role in our overall health and the lack of estrogen that comes when we reach perimenopause and menopause is one of the biggest contributors to the symptoms and negative outcomes that are correlated with that time in our life. Um, also relevant to anyone who has like a hysterectomy or anything like that. Um, and then we have progesterone. So basically once the egg is released, the it then transforms into the corpus luteum and that corpus luteum produces the hormone progesterone and then progesterone stimulates the development of the endometrial lining, which is necessary for pregnancy for implantation. So if pregnancy does not occur, the corpus luteum um, eventually like disintegrates and progesterone and estradiol levels then decrease. So those are kind of the four main hormones and all of them are going to be affected in some way, shape or form um, when we have low energy availability. And I think we'll talk about it in a little bit. Um, yeah. Should we define energy availability right now or in a bit? Uh, let's a bit. just wait. Okay. So we have the hormones. Let's talk about like the cycle and the phases within that cycle. Mm -hmm. So there's three main phases of our menstrual cycle. You could consider menstruation a fourth phase, but basically we have the follicular phase, which starts at the first day of menstruation and lasts up until ovulation. Usually it's about 14, 15 days ish. Okay. In this phase, our hormones are low. So estrogen is low. Progesterone is very low since it's, um, produced by the corpus luteum, which happens after ovulation. Primarily. Um, primarily. Yeah. Uh, LH and FSH are also quite low. So that's the follicular phase. We always say follicular flexin because usually we feel our best during this phase, um, because hormones are low as we get closer to ov ovulation. Um, estrogen starts to increase and right before ovulation, there is a surge in LH and FSH, and then the release of the egg. Okay. So estrogen high or sorry, ovulation, hormone surge, egg is released. And then after ovulation, we have the second half of our cycle, which is the luteal phase. And that is where our hormones are elevated. We have higher estrogen, we have higher progesterone towards the middle of it. And then they start to go down towards the end of it until we reach our next bleed. Right. So your hormones, especially like looking at, um, estrogen and progesterone are at their lowest 
uh, around like the first day of your period and like through that bleed phase and then estrogen starts to rise progesterone stays very low and then we see like another drop in estrogen around the time of the surge in lh fsh ovulation and then we get into the high hormone phase um which is your luteal phase if you've been following us for a while, we have always said, you know, when we're struggling with like PMS or we're like bloated or energy is low or we're just feeling feral as fuck, we will usually say we are luteal as fuck. Luteal um, AF. Luteal AF. Um, yes. So definitely some changes that we see in our bodies, um, not just like phys- physically or physiologically, but mentally. Um, there can be definitely some cognitive, emotional changes and things like that through the shift in hormones. So that's kind of a quick recap of the main hormones and kind of how they are cycling throughout our menstrual phases. Um, and those that's going to be relevant as we continue this conversation. Okay. So moving in, that would be considered what would be like, quote unquote, a normal or healthy cycle. Yeah. I think the like standard for what a normal cycle length is, is 28 to 35 days. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Yeah. Everybody's going to have their own normal and you'll kind of know if you've been tracking it, like what your normal is, if you are someone with a little bit of a longer cycle, a little bit of a shorter cycle, um, et cetera. So then looking at like what happens when we move away from normal and experience some menstrual dysfunction. Mm-hmm. So menstrual dysfunction is a really broad term. Okay. Basically it's just a term used to explain a lack of regular menstrual periods or a lack of a regular cycle. Um, and that can include irregularities in the length or timing of it, irregularities in how heavy it is, things like blood clots, severe PMS symptoms, et cetera. All of those are under the umbrella term of menstrual dysfunction. Okay. Um, and menstrual dysfunction in the research, it shows that it occurs in up to 60% of active women which is alarmingly high. Very high. And I'm curious too, with the standard, how, how many cycles do you have to have in a row that are like irregular in order to be classified? Cause we know that there's like one-off cycles where, you know, this cycle, uh, you know, I was a few days later than I usually was, or like this PMS rocked me. Mm -hmm. How many cycles do we have to have in a row that are irregular to label it as dysfunction? Because it short, short answer is three to five, because there are different types of menstrual dysfunction. Mm. Each of them have their own kind of standard, um, diagnosis criteria. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for example, PMDD premenstrual dysphoric, dysphoric dysfunction is five cycles. Um, okay. functional hypothalamic amenorrhea is three cycles. So it just, it just depends, but three to five is probably a good range. If you are trying to pay attention to this for yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I think this has application when we're talking to clients about their cycle, I get a lot of like, oh, I had an irregular cycle and it's like, okay, so now we mark that as one cycle and we look for like, are we seeing that continue? Um, what kind of like red, yellow, green flags do we need to look for in the next cycle to either yeah. rule it out or keep our eyes on it um, as sure. something to maybe watch for or seek like external um, referral 
support. Yeah. Yeah. Tracking your cycle is definitely, and the symptoms that come with it is definitely super helpful in being able to make more sense of what's going on. Because a lot of times too, like our emotions just are up and down throughout our cycle. Right. (laughs) And sometimes like our emotions or our mental state can cloud our judgment of like what's actually going on. Right. Um, so yeah, tracking it, keeping track of all of your symptoms, the length of it, the length of your bleed, how heavy it is, any emotional symptoms, pain, cramps, breast tenderness, all of that kind of stuff. Super, super helpful. Okay. Nice. Okay. So, um, yeah, I think for the sake of like the rest of the conversation, it's probably helpful to then break down menstrual dysfunction into a few of its like main mm-hmm. categories, the the few ways it can show up. For sure. So the the reason we're breaking it down this way is because my research specifically looked at these types of menstrual dysfunction. Um, and these are like, they're not necessarily more severe. Um, I don't like to put that label on it, but they're the ones that you know, are tied to relative energy deficiency in sport are tied to like these negative long-term implications that we're talking about. Um, so I'll just list them off here. The first one and the one that's like most heavily looked at in the research is called functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. And basically this is just a complete loss of your menstrual cycle. So you are not having a period. Um, and this is reported in like super active individuals and high-level athletes. Um, it can happen in recreational athletes as well, as we will see here. Um, but when we think about that and we hear people losing their periods, that's definitely like the, um, demo that we think of. Um, also people who are, you know, lower body fat percentage, smaller, we generally tend to think that these are the only people struggling with this. And that's not the case at all. Um, like I said, for diagnoses, you have to have lost your period for three consecutive months. Okay. There is also baseline levels of estrogen, FSH, and LH that need to be tested in order for a diagnosis as well. Um, and the primary cause of this is low estrogen levels. Okay. Second, um, dysfunction is something called a luteal phase defect. And basically this is just when the luteal phase, that second half of our cycle is shortened. And when it's shortened, we do not have as much progesterone production. Um, and also our uterine lining does not grow as a result of the limited progesterone. So this one heavily, heavily, um, impacts fertility. So if you have a shortened luteal phase and you're not producing enough progesterone, your egg will not be able to implant Mm. and you will be unable to carry a successful pregnancy. I see. Cause in the first bit, you're like shortened luteal phase. I'm like six. Sounds awesome. Sign me up. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. But now that we know like this impacts fertility a lot. Okay. Got it. Um, and so signs and symptoms of this one are going to be having shorter cycles. So, you know, 20, yeah, 24 day cycles, God, squatting twice a month. Can you yeah. imagine? Yeah. <laughs> so those are signs of that. Um, another one is 
oligomenorrhea, which is irregular and inconsistent blood flow. Okay. So this one is like very broad, you know, it could be spotting in between, it could be super long cycles. Um, it could be like a super heavy cycle followed by a super light cycle, just irregularities there. And with this one, it's often the result of an underlying condition. PCOS hmm. is one that is heavily correlated to oligomenorrhea, um, but other conditions, including type one diabetes, or hyperthyroidism, um, Cushing syndrome, which is when your body produces too much cortisol, all of these can lead to that type of dysfunction. Um, and yeah, usually what we see there is cycles are super long. So generally longer than those 35 days. And in this case, is this a result of PCOS or could it be used as like a, a, a trigger to then look to see if you have PCOS or both? It's, it's both. It's okay. often used as a trigger to look for mm. PCOS. Um, I see, I see. And honestly, I think it's part of, I don't know if it's part of the diagnostic criteria actually um, for PCOS, but they're, they're tied together. Um, and it's a result of, again, those fluctuations or imbalances in those hormones. Yeah. I mean, irregular menstrual cycles is yeah. very broadly part of the PCOS diagnosis. Yeah. Um, okay. And then the last one we have is what's called an anovulatory cycle. So basically this is just when ovulation does not happen. So your, your body does not release that egg again, obviously highly correlated to fertility issues. Um, and also interesting because we can still have a period, we can still bleed even though we haven't ovulated. Um, that's what happens for people who are on birth control that stops ovulation and still bleed. Um, again, it's just that shedding of the uterine lining when we are bleeding and that can happen with or without ovulation. So, mm -hmm. that's an interesting and so one. yeah, so that it might be harder to pick up on this because if you're for still sure. bleeding, how are you knowing that you're not ovulating? That you're not ovulating. Yeah. So some signs that you might not be ovulating would be irregular cycles. So again, changes in mm. length or heaviness. Um, signs that you are ovulating is cervical fluid and an increase in basal body temperature. So if you do not have that cervical fluid production and if you do, you know, take your basal body temperature every day and you're not seeing that increase in the middle of your cycle, those are signs that you're not ovulating. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. okay. Um, and then the other thing I like to mention here that was pretty interesting in the research is that menstrual dysfunction from a hormonal standpoint, so irregular levels of FSH, LH, estrogen, progesterone can still be occurring even in the presence of a seemingly regular period. Mm. So even if we are having a monthly bleed and things seem normal, when we look at the actual hormone levels, there can still be dysfunction happening. Right. So you could easily know, not be aware if you had dysfunction because yeah. you weren't. Yeah. No, yeah. Okay. And in the, in the research, that's like a big, you know, limitation because some mm -hmm. of the studies only use self-report data. They don't do hormone right. testing. Um, so that's something to consider. 
I mean, yeah. And when we're looking at like for clients getting these things diagnosed, it can be really challenging because a lot of doctors will not do yeah. blood panels to tell us what our hormones are doing. For sure. Yeah. So those are the types when I say menstrual dysfunction from now onwards, those are the types that we're talking about. Right. Could All be now. any of them. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. So let's break it down. What actually causes mm-hmm. all of this shit? So multiple different causes. Um, and often like none of these are happening like on, you know, there's multiple things happening at once. Um, so high stress levels can heavily influence your sex hormone production via cortisol. Um, so mm-hmm. chronic stress increases cortisol can have a downstream effect on those hormones. Um, second one is intense exercise. So that's what Nicola was talking about when, you know, people don't take rest days or they do, you know, multiple sessions in a day or whatever. Um, this is often referred to as overtraining. Um, this one is interesting because a lot of times it is accompanied with low energy availability due to not enough food to support that. So it's not necessarily that we're like training too much, but Mm -hmm. more that we're under recovering via inadequate calorie intake, lack of sleep, these types of things. Totally. I like to describe this to clients because I think, you know, we can easily use uh, overtraining as like jargon inappropriately, Mm -hmm. but realistically, like our bodies can handle a lot but we have to be able to recover and think about like our recovery modalities are like rest days, adequate sleep, stress management, and energy availability. So having enough calories come in to support um, things. So that I think is a big like balance to strike when we have, especially clients coming in who are used to training five, six days a week um, and are like, no, but I still like, I can still train, I can still perform, I'm still getting my period, but you know, what else is going on here? For sure. Um, So that's one. And then another one is obviously what we're going to focus this conversation on low energy availability or low energy intake. Okay. And that can result from also a number of factors. So we could have um, disordered eating. Okay. Uh, we could be struggling with body dissatisfaction and reducing calories because of that lack of nutritional knowledge is a big one, especially like in younger populations and athletes. Um, if you are in a sport that requires certain weight class, right. And need to restrict our calories because of that, um, societal barriers. So for example, access to food, financial situation, those types of things, all of those can affect the calories that we are eating. It's not always just about like, oh, we're restricting because we think we need to be smaller. It's multi mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm thinking it, like instantly, I think about the clients who say like, I, I was so busy today at work. I forgot to eat all day. Exactly. Yeah. Things like that, right? Lifestyle in general. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Lots and lots of lifestyle there. Okay. Yeah. So, and then lastly, there's multiple other causes. Those were the three that are kind of really relevant to the work that we do with clients, but thyroid deficiencies, diabetes, other hormone disorders, et cetera, all of those can also affect our sex hormone function. 
Um, so for the sake of today's conversation, we're focusing primarily on energy intake and energy availability. Yeah. Okay. So with that in mind, then, I mean, in the beginning of the conversation, you alluded to like some pretty serious long-term outcomes. Um, so shall we just like remind everybody what those could look like? Mm-hmm. Okay. So some of the long-term outcomes associated with menstrual dysfunction include increased risk for osteoporosis and cardiovascular disease. Okay. This is tied to low bone mineral density and also tied to estrogen's role in substrate metabolism, fat utilization and storage, um, and also endothelial function, um, and vascular function. There are also reductions in resting energy expenditure, okay, or basal metabolic Mm. rate, um, which can have long-term outcomes on weight management, um, fertility issues, obvious one, um, increased injury and illness risk, okay? So one of the research studies I was reading in prep for uh, this podcast showed actually that low energy availability was reported as the strongest predictor of illness in Olympic athletes before the 2016 Olympic (laughs) games in Rio. Okay. So low energy availability suppresses our immune system. We're more prone to illness. We're more prone to, um, injury risk due to various different mechanisms, but um, protein synthesis and bone function are heavily tied to that. Um, another one is reduced performance. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like you just mentioned being at an Olympic level and seeing this, but how, um, how often would we see this in like a lifestyle or recreational athlete, like someone who does CrossFit, maybe does a few competitions a year for sure. Um, so this is going to look like things like inability to hit like normal percentages, um, lack of motivation to train, feeling like flat, um, reaching exhaustion quicker, um, feeling sick or nauseous during your workouts, these types of things. And these are, this is like a chronic thing, you know, like we're all going to have those one-off days where like, we feel like shit or, you know, why did that workout, you know, make me almost puke or whatever, um, (laughs) especially in the CrossFit space. But if that's happening consistently over multiple sessions and multiple weeks, that's a pretty good sign that things are not great. Um, another one and questions about that. No, I don't think so. I think that like that there to me is like a a big one for people. Um, most of our clients are working out in some way, shape or form and training quite hard. Um, and this would be something to keep on your radar for sure. And a good way to do that is just to be tracking your workouts in some capacity. Um, Mm -hmm. cause then you can really, you can really see like, okay, did I actually do worse this day? Or was it just like, I was feeling shitty or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So keeping track of your weights and reps and sets and how you felt before and all of that kind of stuff. Um, another long-term outcome is increased risk for mood dis- disorders and increased severity of mood disorders. So things like anxiety, depression, um, and also just like less severe changes in mood in terms of like irritability, mm. that kind of stuff. We definitely right. see as if like maybe your baseline mood shifts, correct? Like that, yeah. yeah. experiencing potentially like higher highs, lower lows. Yeah. ADHD is actually one 
that a mood disorder that is, um, sorry, not a mood disorder, but something that is tied to this, especially in menopause. Interesting. So there's research that women post-menopause are higher, higher rates of ADHD diagnosis. Oh, wow. I had yeah. no idea that was correlated. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, so yeah. And then worsening of menopause symptoms and onset. So those are all long-term outcomes. All of those, except for one relate to every single person that menstruates, even if they don't want to have kids, mm -hmm. which is why this mm -hmm. conversation is important. Um, and I think too, like with many of these, they can be quote unquote fixed. However, there are certain things that are going to have longer repercussions for us, such as like the reduction in resting energy expenditure, obviously having lower bone mineral density and osteoporosis, like those are going to be much harder to make up for. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So time to talk about energy availability just in general. Mm -hmm. So let's define it. Let's talk about circumstances in which we see it. Okay. So energy availability is just basically our dietary energy intake. So the calories we consume minus our exercise energy expenditure. Okay. So basically it's the en energy or calories available for functioning outside of our exercise. Okay. Okay. So like 90%. Yeah. Big, big percentage. Mm -hmm. um, our energy availability regulates or contributes to all of our metabolic processes, including reproduction, thermoregulation, cellular maintenance, locomotion, growth, et cetera. Okay. So energy intake minus exercise energy expenditure equals energy availability. I wish you could see Sarah's hands for that equation. They're very helpful. <laughs> if we ever get this on YouTube, you'll be able to. Yeah, nice. So when fuel availability is limited, which is what happens when we have low EA or low energy availability, we have fewer calories to support our non-vital functions, such as growth, reproduction, hormone production, et cetera. Right. And a big one we should all be mindful of is muscle growth. For sure. Like if, if our body doesn't have that much energy coming in, it's going to prioritize keeping you alive and breathing yeah. it is yeah. not going to prioritize your biceps sorry sorry yeah. sorry <laughs> yeah sad 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 um so that is the definition of energy availability and when we look at it in the research it is normalized to kilograms of lean body mass okay and there's kind of three thresholds that they describe um low energy availability is less than 30 calories. Okay. I'm just going to say this and then explain it. So low is less than 30. Moderate is 30 to 45 and optimal is equal to or higher than 45. And those numbers are calories per kilogram of fat-free mass. Okay. So if you have optimal energy availability and it's 45 kilo kilocalories, calories per kilogram of fat-free mass, that means that there's 45 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass available for those key bodily functions. 
And that's not just muscle. Fat-free mass is everything in your body that is not Not fat. fat. Correct. Okay. So that, those are kind of like the three levels that a lot of the research studies look at and they look at, okay, in people with menstrual dysfunction, how many of them are under 30? How many of them are between 30 to 35? How many of them are above 45? Um, And that was actually my research that I did was I looked at whether there was a threshold level where menstrual dysfunction Mm. existed, right? Mm -hmm. and so, you know, was it, was it only prevalent under, or was it only present under that 30 kilocals? Was it, you know, at all levels? Um, and yeah, what we found is it is present at all levels. And we'll get into that a little bit later. There's not, not a threshold level. Okay. But they need to quantify that for research purposes. Mm-hmm. So that's how they do it. Okay. So that makes sense. That is, yeah, I think so. That's energy availability. So how then do we look at that in terms of menstrual dysfunction? What happens there? So low energy avail- availability can lead to menstrual dysfunction through interactions with a big one is the gonadotropin hormone releasing hormone, GNRH for short. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um luteinizing hormone, leptin, estrogen, progesterone. Again, if we do not have enough calories available to help produce and regulate those hormones, we are going to see downstream effects. And because they are heavily tied to each other, if one is affected, many of the others are affected. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. when we look at GNRH, GNRH determines the secretion of LH and FSH. Okay. GNRH is heavily influenced by low energy availability. And so a lot of the menstrual dysfunction that we see is due to changes in that luteinizing hormone level. Um, Specifically, we have lower levels of luteinizing hormone. Got it. Okay. Um, Low energy availability individuals also often have low leptin levels, which further affects GNRH and LH. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And I think like knowing what we do about leptin, Mm -hmm. um, that it is a satiety hormone, this makes a lot of sense that like this would happen when we are dieting because we are less likely to see as much leptin as we would had we had adequate energy availability. Correct. Okay. Okay. Um, And yeah, so it's through that suppression of GNRH resulting suppression of LH that then results in less estrogen and progesterone. So it's kind of like a downstream effect. Mm -hmm. Um, And like having low energy availability also alters our substrate utilization um, and things like insulin, cortisol, growth hormone, ghrelin, which is our other satiety or hunger hormone, fatty acids, etc. So there's a huge range of effects on the on the body. Yikes, yikes, yikes. Yeah. I'm going to go get a snack after this. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I want to ask the audience if that's clear. Yeah. <laughs> and we move on. Um, but yeah, a lot to digest there. So I think 
really what we need to know is like low energy availability absolutely impacts hormones related to our cycle, which is going to impact how we experience our cycle Mm -hmm. and potentially how we have dysfunction. Correct. Cool. Okay. So what else have you learned through your research then? Mm -hmm. So like I mentioned inside my research, we looked at whether there was a threshold level, like do people who are eating that 45, are they exempt from menstrual dysfunction? Are people Mm -hmm. under that 30 guaranteed menstrual dysfunction? And basically what we found is that there's actually not a threshold level and that dysfunction exists at all ranges, depending on the athlete. So even athletes Mm -hmm. at that 45 kilogram kilocals per kilogram of fat-free mass can still have menstrual dysfunction. However, there is a significant increase in the probability of menstrual Mm. dysfunction, the lower your energy availability. Okay. And I think this, I'm assuming this makes sense to everybody that like the lower the energy availability, the more likely it is that we're going to see dysfunction. Correct. And the severity of that function also Mm. likely worsens the lower your energy availability. Okay. Okay. So there were some interesting things inside of that. Number one, because it's happening at all levels, it shows us that multiple factors are at play here, not just energy availability. Okay. Um, Certain individuals might be more sensitive to changes in energy availability and then thus have a bigger impact on their LH, FSH levels, et cetera. And Mm -hmm. things that could contribute to that are, you know, stress. Um, whether it's, uh, perceived or, uh, actual stress, like through exercise, et cetera, um, your gynecological age. So how long you've been menstruating for can also affect that. Um, those are like, meaning like the older you are, the more or less susceptible, Uh, sorry, the longer you have had your period. Correct. And do you know, is it the longer you've had your period, the more susceptible or the more resilient or resistant you are to this you know that's a good question I did not get into that and I think I still have the study open here on my computer so I could look into it but I think that Hmm. in this particular study they were just listing that in the in the discussion they weren't it wasn't an actual trial that looked at that specifically um knowing yeah I'm actually not sure I feel like Um, that would be hard to determined too because like there is a lot of research that suggests that a period or a cycle doesn't quote unquote normalize or become regular for quite a few years after the onset of your first period so yeah yeah, I'd be curious to see how a study like that would be conducted for sure okay um I can look that up and report back yeah yeah report back report back um But yeah, so there's multiple factors at play here, low energy availability being one of them and one of them that's like quite within our control, right? For sure. Um, Another interesting thing was that suppression of reproductive function is predicted by the magnitude of the energy deficit. So higher energy deficit, more suppression of menstrual function, typically as a trend. Mm Um, versus the amount of fat mass a woman carries. Okay. And that's where this conversation around, like, typically when we think of people who lose their periods, they're like small, low body fat, you know, 
mm-hmm. super active people. Mm-hmm. But this finding suggests that acute fuel availability, so what we're eating on a day-to-day basis, not our chronic energy or fat stores, are key modulators here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that this dysfunction can happen regardless of what your body composition is like. Totally. That is super, super important. Just like, you know, in our medical system, we know there's a lot of fat phobia and this is why a lot of times like eating disorders go undiagnosed in Mm -hmm. fatter bodies. Yeah. People with more fat mass, um, strictly because we as a society don't perceive that they would be having trouble eating we don't perceive them as not eating or in this case not getting enough energy Mm -hmm. yeah it's not just eating disorders pretty much Mm -hmm. everything every medical condition um this (laughs) this menstrual dysfunction is a huge one right so many people in larger bodies will be told like just lose weight you know and that kind of stuff and so I think that's a really important thing to consider here. Um, And if you are one of those people, or if you know someone who has had that experience with their doctor, like hopefully this research will give you like kind of the push to like seek support elsewhere, seek more information, get a second opinion um, because this shit is real regardless of your body composition. Totally. Big time. Um, With that, there's also research that suggested that the body's response to low energy availability is quick and it can actually affect the current cycle. So for example, if you have a couple days of significantly low energy availability at the beginning of your cycle, it can affect your LH levels in that same cycle. Wow, 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 wow. Which was super interesting. Yeah, yeah. Right. And that kind of like adds to the conversation that we have kind of like been considering when we talk about cycle irregularities with clients where certain things can happen within the time of the follicle development, which is longer than just a single cycle. But now it also adds on this new information that like, it's not just the what around a hundred days for follicle development that can impact how um, that period is then perceived or experienced, but now also what happens during the cycle. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And I would assume, I don't know this, I haven't read this anywhere, but I would assume that the factors that are more chronic, chronically mm-hmm. affecting or like mm-hmm. affecting things in a longer term or like much before are the factors like stress, mm-hmm. micronutrient intake, that kind of stuff. Whereas the response to energy availability is more acute than yeah. those other things. Yeah. Um, I think that makes sense. But that's also why it's so important to track um, mm-hmm. and to make note of any symptoms um, so that you can see. And if you are doing something like tracking macros, well, then you have that to tie to as well, um, which is really nice. Totally. Okay. Uh, lots of interesting stuff there. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, can you explain a little bit more then about what you mean by um, like what happens then if you're like not eating for a few days at a time, how does that impact the the LH and FSH? Yeah, so it just, when we do not have enough calories, the 
HPO access or the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian access is affected acutely. And so we do not see that surge of LH that often happens before ovulation. Basically, we're, we do not have enough energy to make that happen. Gotcha. Okay. So extrapolating from that, I would assume that by this research, we're not going to recommend fasting to women. Correct. As a strategy, like beyond, Correct. you know, spiritual or um, religious purposes, mm-hmm. we're not going to say, hey, let's start fasting, knowing yeah. how important daily energy intake is. Absolutely. And there's actually some other research findings that suggest that fasting probably isn't a great idea either. Um, And basically that research looked at what's called within day energy balance. So we can look at day to day energy balance. Mm -hmm. So, you know, let's say your maintenance calories are 2000 calories a day and you're eating 2000 calories a day your energy is balanced. Your intake and your outtake are pretty much matched. That's a dynamic equation. It's, you know, and it's not stagnant. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the sake of this conversation, that is day-to-day energy balance. When we look at within-day energy balance, that looks at throughout the 24 hours in the day, what amount of time is spent either in an energy surplus, in energy balance, or in low energy availability. Okay. Okay. So for example, if you did a two hour training session and then didn't eat for two hours after, you would likely experience a period of time in low energy availability. Okay. Mm -hmm. Even if you still hit your 2000 calories per day, you still had that period of time within the day that you were, you had fewer calories available than your body needed. Interesting. Interesting. Does that I make think sense? This is, yeah. And I think it's probably going to have a light bulb moment for a lot of people who are those that don't eat frequently throughout the day, who will have maybe a breakfast or don't eat till noon. And then maybe they have a snack or something and then don't eat till dinner time again. Big time. There are a lot of conversations like that within clients, especially as I mentioned before with this idea of like, I got busy and I quote unquote forgot to eat. Couldn't eat. Yeah. 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 Um, so it was interesting because in this specific studies, athletes who had menstrual dysfunction spent 24% more time in that negative energy balance or low energy ability throughout the day, even though the day-to-day energy availability did not differ. Gotcha. So on paper, they're eating enough day-to-day. Yeah. Okay. But within the day, there were periods where their body was lacking glucose, lacking calories in order to support functioning. Mm -hmm. And so what then would we predict for people who are eating? So we've talked about eating, like I'm assuming going to be larger meals very infrequently throughout the day. What about people who like kind of snack just a little Mm -hmm. here and there? Yeah. That was another interesting finding was that the people who had higher amounts of time in that low energy state, actually we're eating more frequently. Explain. So basically what the researchers took from that in the discussion was that when we're eating more frequently, our meals are likely smaller 
and also lots of people like just snack throughout the day and so there's not an actually there's like no sustenance to it um especially when it comes to carbohydrates and protein so basically they saw people were eating more frequently but they weren't eating enough to actually pull them into that like energy balance or above mm. right whereas people who are eating less frequently were likely having bigger meals more sustenance that were then carrying them a longer time in energy balance and preventing them from dipping low. Interesting. So they, if you're eating fewer, but bigger meals, you're probably having like larger windows of energy, but larger windows of energy balance. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Very interesting. Interesting. So that, so then, yeah, I mean that together having both of those where it's like, if we eat too infrequently, we're in trouble or have to be mindful. And if we eat too frequently, but not enough calories per meal, we have to be mindful. So then like, how do we parse out? Like how frequently should we be eating? For sure. That's definitely going to vary for everyone. And you know, there's no black and white answer here. Number one, we need to do what works for us. Um, so some people literally can't eat six times a day because they're in meetings all day or, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. So if you're one of those people, you need to make sure that your meals are large and that they contain protein, fats, and carbohydrates. And maybe you're supplementing with some sort of liquid calories, you know, in between those meals, if you can't have a regular, Mm -hmm. a regular snack or meal. Um, And if you're someone who enjoys eating more frequently, we need to make sure again, that those snacks and meals, Molly's doing something crazy, um, have again, protein, fat, and carbohydrate and an adequate amount of calories, right? You want to be looking for things like energy crashes, um, difficulties concentrating or focusing. Um, what else did I, what else? I thought I had a couple. I think like mood and irritability become things that maybe are secondary in our recognition in how they're tied to this, um, but can be some pretty obvious signals if you start Mm -hmm. to pay attention. Yeah. And also pre and post-workout nutrition becomes incredibly important here, regardless Mm -hmm. if you're in the three per day or the six per day, right? Mm -hmm. If you are in the three per day and you eat before, but now you're not eating for two hours after, that's something we need to be mindful of. And that's where we might want to use like a liquid option, right? Um, if you are in the six per day, well, that post-workout and pre-workout meal need to be fucking substantial. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think that's where like the multiple meals a day, that's where people struggle is because they're like, oh, well, I like had a protein bar or, oh, I had like some veggies and dip or I don't fucking know. Oh, I had a rice cake with peanut butter. Like, okay, that's great. And it, it probably helped your hunger. It helps. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something. Yeah. But But if we're looking to optimize or, or in some cases just maintain like regular function, we need to be a little bit more mindful. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's some really interesting like takeaways there in terms of when we're looking at this idea of like what kind of diet is best for people especially women um already kind of mentioned that like hey maybe this research is suggesting that maybe we shouldn't be fasting Mm -hmm. but it also yeah based on like people in sports I know you had um made some notes about like what to consider in terms of carbohydrates and things like that too 
Yeah. So, I mean, this research study, <laughs> the 24 hour within day one really just suggested that like time in a catabolic state, um, or without blood glucose available may contribute to menstrual dysfunction. Right. Mm. Um, and carbohydrate metabolism specifically can have a significant interaction on menstrual function and all of those hormones, um, being produced in adequate levels. Um, and it's especially important for people who are competing or participating in glycolytic sports like CrossFit. Um, and I think that- Can you give some other examples? Any like high intensity. So something like fucking Orange Theory or like, you know, F45, those types of like boot camp style workouts, um, even like weightlifting. We want to think like short, intense durations. Those are mainly using carbohydrates. Um, but I also think that there's this idea that endurance athletes don't need carbohydrates because it's like a, you know, fat burning, um, (laughs) not fat burning phase, you know, like people, I can't even think of it because it's like so wrong. The the thought process is so flawed, but people think that that, like endurance uses fat. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but carbohydrates are still so important for endurance athletes. Um, but I think that this like blood glucose and glucose availability thing is just more relevant for people in those high intensity modalities because a women tend to under eat carbohydrates already if they are trying to restrict, restrict calories in some way. Um, and B those sports use so much carbohydrate so the Mm -hmm. leftover is not a lot if we're not eating enough yeah totally so then to go with this idea of like "Mm, let's think twice before we fast this to me at least supports this idea that like maybe keto and carnivore are not always going to be appropriate diets especially for people with a menstrual cycle correct yeah yeah any yeah, this could be a rant for another day, but anything that is causing you to restrict or cut out food groups or do this crazy shit just probably isn't. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think we really have had anybody come to us with ideas of keto or carnivore. No. Carnivore never. I've never had a client come in wanting to do that, but it's still out there. It's still circulating. For sure. Um, So yeah, just be mindful. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, I think we should wrap things up pretty quick here. So we're just going to rapid fire some signs to look out for that you are maybe in a period of low energy availability, or you might not be eating enough. Um, And then some main takeaways. Um, So biggest signs you might not be eating enough are going to be things like poor sleep quality, poor recovery, low energy and mood, irritability, low sex drive, frequent illness or injury, things like decreased coordination and concentration, difficulty focusing. All of those are pretty good signs that you're not eating enough. Things like um, your hair falling out, brittle skin and nails also pretty, those yeah. are like going to be like way later onset signs, but also. But yeah. Hopefully we're catching it before we're getting there. Yeah. And I mean, like, this is just like another ode to biofeedback and why we like to track it so that you are aware of like what your baselines feel like. So 
like there is that level of self-awareness that is necessary to be able to catch that. It's one thing to have like a one-off night of shitty sleep, but we want to be aware that like Mm -hmm. our sleep quality has been shitty for a while or that we've found like we're never fully recovered. What does the feeling fully recovered even feel like and look like to you? What does your performance look and feel like when you are you know, fueled well. Mm -hmm. Um, So to be tracking these things, not just your cycle, but tracking it alongside your cycle and knowing your natural and normal ebbs and flows. um, So you could potentially identify when things were no longer normal would be extremely helpful. And also so helpful to have a coach with you there. Um, Some people don't know what it feels like to feel good in the gym. You know, because they've been chronically dieting or under eating for so long and that's just normal. And so you don't even realize that there's an issue with it until, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. you start working with someone or you start talking to someone about it. Right. Um, So having a coach or just another, like a training partner or someone there to help, to help bring those to light if they are occurring. Also so supportive. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So what were, that was like a lot of research, lots of insight gains. What were the limitations? Did you want to quickly run through those or do you want to skip them today? Um, I'll go through these really quick. Um, with all research, there's obviously limitations. Um, in the, in this specific stuff that we're looking right now, the two sides are going to be looking at menstrual dysfunction and looking at energy intake. And so one of the biggest limitations in measuring energy intake is the limitations in food reporting. Um, so actually measuring what people are eating and the ways that they do that in studies are very different. Some Mm -hmm. people complete food logs. Some people are like given like exact food to eat. Some people, um, do like a self-report, you know, recall, you know, there's so many different (laughs) things. So that's a big limitation. Um, there's also huge limitations in measuring energy expenditure and how many calories people are actually burning. Um, Mm -hmm. the science and the technology there has its limitations. Um, and then that other one I already mentioned is that hormone testing isn't always done. So if we're not actually testing the hormone levels, there's limitations to like, okay, are we missing people that are actually having dysfunction without symptoms or are people having symptoms that are the result of something else and hormone levels are actually fine? Like it works both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's important to just like recognize there are those limitations. Um, but still, you know, the findings are pretty strong that there is that correlation between the low energy availability and dysfunction. And the findings are even stronger that dysfunction has those long-term consequences. Right. Yeah. Okay. So wrap things up, main takeaways here. Um, Menstrual dysfunction can have a lot of negative health outcomes beyond just fertility. Certainly that is a big one, but again, depending on what phase of life you are at, um, there are still things to be very, very aware of. Um, Yeah. Another one is that low energy availability is a huge driver of menstrual dysfunction in active women. And that's going to be compounded when it's combined with high stress, high training loads, you know, all of those factors that we talked about. Um, Mm -hmm. And with that, and especially with the within day energy availability study, calorie intake, meal timing, macronutrient and micronutrient intake are all important. 
Boom. Well, great. Our <laughs> clients are going to crush it. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Anyways, I hope that was helpful. Um, try not to get like too deep in the weeds with like the science, um, but just kind of like showing you all some correlations and specifically some applications for your own journeys. Um, so if you have questions about anything we talked about today, feel free to uh, send us a message on Instagram or shoot us an email. Or if you're working with one of us, you can ask us inside of your coaching. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think maybe like I have one more like thought or takeaway, which is like we talked a lot about um, being mindful that we're eating enough, eating frequently, but at the same time, also acknowledging that like we do have clients who are in diet phases and we do absolutely support right. body autonomy and pursuing um, recomposition or diet phases for clients who are quote unquote ready. Yeah. But there's a big caveat here. And I think like this definitely plays into how we approach that. That like there are various ways to approach a diet phase. There are various like ways to quote unquote assess readiness. Mm-hmm. And we do so not lightly with clients. For we sure. are pretty diligent in checking in on monitoring all these things. And I don't know, but I can confidently say you don't have any clients who are coming in, no idea about biofeedback, no idea about macronutrient intake and are just like shoot, shooting into a diet phase. Um, sure. So there's like, for everyone who gets frustrated with us saying like, hey, yeah, I recognize you want to diet, but we're not going to do so just yet. This is like one of several reasons why we are adamant on taking our time with it and making sure that like there is a very supportive base of health first. Sure. And also going into the planning of the actual diet and what that looks mm-hmm. like and how long it is and how, mm-hmm. you know, how big the calorie deficit is. Like these are all things that as your coaches, we care about for your long-term health. And it's why we push back sometimes when you are, you know, wanting results to come quicker or you're wanting to drop calories again, or you're wanting to, like Nicholas said, jump right into a diet phase without the foundations. Um those types of things. Like this is the shit that we're looking out for long-term um, as coaches who care about your well-being. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's do a fuck yes and fuck no. Cause Molly's whining to go out. I, yeah. I can see her little tail going back and forth <laughs> in the doorway. Um, meanwhile, Goose is just past the fuck out. Um, okay. I have a fuck yes, which okay. is going to therapy when you think you have everything sorted out <laughs> I, I think like that could be like a fuck no too uh why is that a fuck no well just because oh you're saying like you decided to go to therapy even though you felt like you didn't need to well need to I guess is like relative well, but yeah like I went in feeling okay. pretty good yeah like no major things like I'm not right. going in like you know with a, a list of like problems or woes but I think I have said this before but I always shock myself at how helpful the therapy sessions are when I don't go in with like specific like right it's not a shit storm when I'm like yeah. proactive with it yeah yeah I had like the best therapy session of a very long time yesterday and it was definitely one where I was like I don't really like need it so to speak Mm-hmm. You know, I always think like, oh, shouldn't I save it for like when I'm like <laughs> in crisis, need help? Yeah, yeah, in crisis. But truly, I think I get the most out of it when, yeah, it's when it's like that. Yeah, so yeah. that was the big fuck yes for me this week. Love that. I thought you meant like 
you go into therapy, like, <laughs> and then like, you, you know, have nothing to talk then, about. Well, and then your therapist is like, actually this, you know, like just drops a bomb. Oh, that's why actually I'm meant. noticing this. And it's yeah. like, so not on your radar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, that has happened, but thankfully that was, that's not the, the scenario this week. Right. We'll love that for you. I'm going next week. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Okay. What's your um, fuck no then? My fuck no is Molly having lice, which like isn't even a big fuck no for me because I barely had to deal with it because we were in Phoenix and the poor girl who watches her while we're gone and stays at her house was like a fucking saint. And Hope you got her it's a gift. so good. We paid her extra. I'll probably get her like a little present, but yeah, she was her like a little card with a little lice. On yeah, it. I could yeah. print out that scene from Arthur. Did you watch Arthur growing up? No. The lice episode. I, I probably have seen it. I feel like they showed it, us that in school. It has me shit. in tears. It yeah. is so funny. They document like this. The lice is like a little like army guy and he's like writing in his journal when he's the last lice left and he tries to make it to like the brain's head and he falls oh yeah good Um, yeah yeah you could draw a little lice for her I think she's seen enough she's probably like "Mm, I don't want to look at these anymore lice feels like archaic like I haven't maybe it's because I don't have too many friends with kids of the age who would be like getting lice at school but like man I kind of thought like those died out no they're still still going yeah uh my one of our friends said that they got a message from like their kids school like a few months ago that it was also in the schools so molly got hers at daycare we're pretty sure but yeah and thankfully you said that dog lace doesn't get passed to humans correct or other animals god can you imagine coming home and you like getting lice gross (laughs) it would be so much worse ew 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 anyways that's my fuck so gross Okay, yeah, that one I think we all can agree is the big fuck no. Yeah. So to rapidly wrap up, once again, if you like this style, if you learned a lot, please let us know and we will do more of these. Um, I know Sarah was like, Nicole will do these, but I'm already like scheming now about the topics I will choose and they will probably vary a little bit since I'm definitely doing far more research into the psychology of things. Yes. Um, so that actually gives me a lot of exciting ideas for things yeah. to talk about. So if you have topic recommendations or things that you are like, we maybe talk about in coaching or you hear us talk about and you want to know like the deep dive or the research we've gone through, um, definitely feel free to broaden your horizons and dive into things more quote unquote mindset related to, because I would love yeah. to go through those. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be fun. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, next week's app will be a friend of the pod natalie i believe mm-hmm. and then, first friend of the pod episode yeah friend of the pod okay. and then in the future too we're gonna do another like rapid fire q a so look out for that on instagram because obviously we need your questions yeah. if we're going to do the answers yeah <laughs> thanks so much for questions. helping yeah thanks in advance <laughs> okay everyone well thanks for being here and we'll see you later goodbye Bye, Dee.